Okay, so, so friendship and Krishna consciousness, that's going to be our topic tonight. And at the end of the lecture, if I'm successful, a big fight will break out. And, um, <laughs> so, um, the first obvious point about, well, to me, that, that at least it occurs to me about friendship and Krishna consciousness is that it's possible, according to our teachings, among those who have achieved at least the Madhya Madhikari position of the second class status in Krishna consciousness, uh, first class devotee sees Krishna as his or her Lord, makes friendship, and um, actually it's second class, first class devotee is just a Paramahansa who sees Krishna everywhere and uh, sees everyone as a devotee of Krishna. Some people just, you know, having a, a case of amnesia. But basically everyone is a devotee of Krishna. And then a second-class devotee sees Krishna as his or her worshipful Lord, uh, sees the devotees as their natural friends, makes friendship with devotees, uh, feels compassion for those who don't know about Krishna and tries to help them, and avoids people who are envious of Krishna and basically if one tries to preach to them, it'll do more harm than good because the people, they'll, they'll commit offenses. And the third class devotee uh, is sort of uh, puja centric. As the Bhagavatam says, archayameva. Uh, which means archa, of course, the deity form, then archayam eva means only in the deity form. <coughs> Too early in the year for Santa Claus, right? <laughs> so archayam eva means only in the deity form. And Hariye uh, unto Hari, Pujang Juts, one who Shadhayehate with faith. Shadhayehate undertakes Puja, performs Puja to the Lord, Hariye, but only in the deity form. Natad Bhaktishu, and not such a, such a devotee does not worship the Lord in the hearts of the devotees. And uh, nor in other living beings. So the Bhagavatam concludes somewhat uh, bluntly, Savakta, that devotee, Prakrita Smita, is understood to be on the material platform. That is not a liberated devotee. It's not someone on the spiritual platform. Interesting because it coincides with the very popular distinction between religious and spiritual. It's not that spiritual people are not religious, it's just that a lot of religious people are not spiritual. That's the problem. So, um, so going back to the devotee in the second class, uh, a second class devotee understands that Krishna is not simply in one place. Krishna certainly is in the temple room, but as I've explained many times, the whole point of worshiping Krishna in the mandir, in the temple, 
it's practice, it's sadhana bhakti, so that when you walk out the door, you see Krishna everywhere else. No. All right, Krishna. Still, we can get you in maybe like behind third base over there. <laughs> so, uh, that's what we're doing in the temple. It's not, in other words, worshiping in the temple is not a complete process. It is practicing for something else, which is actually even more advanced. And that is seeing Krishna in the hearts of everyone and seeing that actually every material body, every living body is a mandir because Krishna is there. Krishna is installed in the heart of every living being. And so clearly to go beyond the, the mandir, which is important because that's where we have our most intense, powerful practice of Krishna consciousness, then to go beyond that and see Krishna everywhere, uh, that's the second class position. And then the Paramahamsa or the, or the first class devotee uh, just sees everyone as who they really are. In other words, the first class devotee is not affected or, so to speak, faked out by the false egos that people are projecting. Someone may act like a materialistic person or they may act like they're not interested, but an advanced devotee sees that whatever, whoever somebody thinks they are, or whoever, they're, whoever they're trying to be or pretending to be, a pure devotee can see, no, you're actually an eternal soul. You're part of Krishna. Sorry. <laughs> did, I, did I smile? <laughs> so, uh, you know that sannyasis don't wear makeup. That's one of our, it's one of the symptoms of renounced soul. So, but what... <laughs> One really interesting point here is that, and, and Bhakti, what I'm about to explain, Bhakti Yuno Thakur and his son, Bhakti Siddhanta, talk about this actually quite a bit. They speak about it very strongly, probably in stronger terms than I'm using because, you know, I have to get along with everybody. But um, there is, what's that? Is that, is that? is that Reiki or no? What's that? Oh. So there is a neophyte understanding which Bhakti Vinod and Bhakti Siddhanta criticize very strongly, where a person thinks the more I separate myself from the non devotees, the more advanced I am. In other words, I have to always dress differently, and if I don't, it, it sort of threatens my identity. In other words, I, I, I have to dress differently. I have to do everything differently. And we have to build these high cultural walls of separation. And, uh, and so the more you separate yourself, the more you distinguish yourself from other people, uh, the more advanced you are. But actually, if you take a closer look at the three levels of devotees, what you find is that the more a devotee advances, the more that devotee identifies with all living beings. 
It's exactly the opposite. Because an advanced devotee is not threatened by treating people nicely or is not threatened by, in other words, an advanced devotee actually has the, you could say, the spiritual, enough in their spiritual bank account where they can actually present themselves in society in a way that, so they can fit in, so that non-devotees can be comfortable with them. And at the same time, that doesn't threaten that devotee's spiritual life because the devotee is strong in his or her self-understanding. So we get to the Paramahansa who just sees everyone as a devotee, who doesn't see non-devotees. I mean, some of them have amnesia, some of them, you know, forgot, but, but basically everyone is a devotee of Krishna. There are only pure souls in this universe, although some of them are uh, in a type of coma. So, I mean, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Atmopanyena Sarvatra, Samang Pashati Georgina, Sukum Vadukum Sadyogi Paramomata. If I quoted that right, didn't I? Didn't. I know I got the first two. I know both lines are right. I hope they go together in the same verse. <laughs> I'll just, uh, I'll just yeah, verify that. Right. Really? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Bandaji. So it begins Admopamyena. Uh, in Sanskrit, the verb ma means to measure. So you get matra, measurement. That's where we get English metric and meter, all those words. It's all just Sanskrit matra. So then upa has a sense of proximity. I mean, it means other things also, upa. Uh, oh, God, I can't resist. We also have upa in English, by the way. Uh, upa in English, through the Greek. The Greeks spelled it uh, H-Y-P-O. The Greeks did not pronounce, ancient Greeks did not pronounce an H at the beginning of a word. As in, for example, our words like honor and hour, like how many hours. So we drop, we don't pronounce the H. That's from the Greek. And so um, that's why from Hindu, you get Hindu in India. So anyway, uh, this word upa in Sanskrit became H-Y-P-O, with Greeks pronounced it upo, and it became English hypo. Which means less than the normal close to, but but not as much as anyway. Okay, so upa. So upa means proximity, and so you, so upa ma means bringing two things together to measure them. So therefore, upa ma means a comparison, and and therefore one name of Krishna is anupama, which means beyond comparison, incomparable. That's actually what it means, anupama. And so from this word upama, you have the word op. Oh, do you have to do that right now? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, let's let's close the kitchen yeah. down till class is over. Right. Thank you. I mean, I know it's an unusual request at a Hare Krishna program, but <laughs> so so the word upama from the word upama you get the word opamya, just a derivative word which means by means of a comparison. And so Krishna says, Atmopamyena, by comparing yourself, Sarvatra, to everyone else. That's literally what it means. By comparing yourself, your soul, by comparing your soul, Atmopamyena, to every other living being, Sarvatra, everywhere, Samang Pasyati Jordan, one who sees equality. 
you compare yourself to every other living being and you find that we're all equal. So Krishna is actually describing here universal empathy. Universal empathy. Atmopamyena sarvatra samang, which we also have in English, by the way. Do you know what it is? Same. Same, yeah, the word same. And also, if you change the S to H again, you get the prefix homo, like homogeneous. But anyway, so, Atma, so, so one who sees equally everywhere, you see every living being as equal to you by comparing that soul to your soul. Whether that person's in a happy or miserable condition. I, Christian says that yogi or that spiritual practitioner is what it actually means here. I can, that spiritual practitioner is considered to be the highest, the most advanced. So again, the idea that the more strict you are, the more advanced you are in Krishna consciousness, the more you raise these high walls of cultural separation by making yourself very different from the public you're trying to reach. Uh, <clears throat> nope. Actually, the, the highest spiritual tra- practitioner is the one who sees the quality of all living beings. But by the way, I've mentioned this many times in many lectures, that um, that's one way you can judge how a spiritual community or society is doing. Because we are souls and bodies at the present time. And so because we have these bodies, we definitely have a human life. I mean, we can't pretend that we don't have human emotions and human needs and all that. At the same time, we know that we're souls. And so on the external platform, there are hierarchies. For example, guru and disciple, uh, teacher and student, parents and children. There are administrative hierarchies. And these hierarchies are natural and they're necessary in order for society to function. However, the higher reality, that, that's, you know, that's something that has to be done because Krishna himself teaches hierarchy. In the Bhagavad Gita, for example, he teaches Chaturvarnya Mahasrishtam. I've created a system of four varnas, which are hierarchical. Krishna talks about students surrendering to teachers and serving them. Krishna talks about children serving parents or, or being faithful to their parents. He calls himself the supreme parent twice in the Gita. And Arjuna calls him the father. Actually, Krishna says, I'm the father and the mother. So Krishna definitely uh, teaches a necessary hierarchy for embodied souls. At the same time, Krishna also teaches that there is a higher reality, which is that we're all equal. And in Sanskrit, typically in Sanskrit philosophy, including our Vaishnava philosophy, these two levels are called Vyavaharika um, and uh, Paramartika, or the word Vyavahara in Sanskrit uh, means just sort of normal intercourse. Like you have to go shopping, you have to raise children, you got to do this, you got to do that. So if you're filling out a form to get a credit card and, and they say birthplace, and you say, I was never born and will never die. I cannot be withered by the wind. I mean, you won't get the credit card or you won't get the job or whatever else you're applying for. So 
I have some great news here for you. In ancient Vedic culture, they actually had common sense, which you wouldn't guess seeing some people today. But anyway, so they had common sense, and so that's called vyavahara. The word vyavahara is sort of ordinary social intercourse, vyavaharika, artha, that what you have to do just to get along in the world. And there's paramartha, the highest meaning. So if you're giving, let's say you're giving a, a Bhagavad Gita class, and you say, who am I? I am the person who was born at this time and place. I am the, the, the child of these parents. That's who I ultimately am. No. You, then you do have to talk about yourself as a soul. So these two levels are there. We have to function in the world, but we have to also pursue self-realization. So on the level of Vyavaharika, there's hierarchy because it's necessary and otherwise there'll be chaos. However, we can judge how spiritual a community or society really is by seeing to what extent this ultimate loving equality shines through. That yes, we have hierarchies because, because otherwise there's anarchy, but at the same time, the people who actually tend to be in the higher levels of the hierarchy, whether it's a temple president, a sannyasi, or a guru, or head bottle washer, you know, whatever it is. Um, although they execute their duties and they, respond, they accept their responsibilities, but in their heart, they don't really think they're better than the other people. And if someone occupies a high position and actually believes that I'm better than these other people, then that person is really not so qualified. And that becomes a problem. If you have a spiritual society or a so-called religious society where people who achieve high positions really feel that they're higher than other people, that's a problem. In fact, as I've said many times, that really, in a sense, the first qualification to be, for example, a guru or a, some, you know, leader in a spiritual society is that, is that you don't think you're better. For example, if you're a mother or father and you have children, you don't think I'm better than my children. I mean, obviously, you're an adult and your child's a child. But ultimately, in, in the eyes of a loving parent, the children are actually more important. And so in the same way, if someone's actually a bona fide spiritual leader, uh, they, they certainly don't think I'm better, I'm more, but rather they think that, yes, I have to do my duties, I have to give certain guidance, but actually, I don't see myself as a soul as better than this other soul because Krishna says that's not the way you do it. Krishna also says, Samak sarveshu bhuteshu mad bhaktiṃ labhate param. A person achieves the highest devotion. A person achieves the highest bhakti only if they see all living beings equally. If one is equal, actually, Samak here refers to the person. Samak sarveshu bhuteshu. That's the locative plural form that Eshu thing. So, Samak Sarveshu Bhuteshu, one who is equal to all living beings, Mud Bhaktim, devotion to me, Labate achieves Param, the highest, real spiritual devotion. So, we can see then how, since Krishna says Sarveshu Bhuteshu, he doesn't say Sarveshu Bhakteshu. He doesn't say one is equal to all devotees. He's talking about all living beings. In fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, 
<laughs> everything I say, I've said many times. I'm uh, doing this for a while. That um, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna clearly talks about his devotees as a distinct group of people. So it's not that the devotees are just like, you know, there's nothing special about the devotees. No. Krishna says, Madhbhakta, Madhbhakteshu. So Krishna talks about the devotees as a distinct group because there are people who are trying to love him and therefore he reciprocates. So they are a special group. At the same time, most of the time, Krishna just talks about everyone, about all souls, about all living beings. It's just, you know, everyone. And so, um, so as we advance, as we advance in Krishna consciousness, uh, we, our heart grows and we care about more and more people. We're able to do that. It's just like when I was a little kid, my mother told me, and I'm sure your mother's told you, don't take candy from strangers. Is anyone here that didn't get that instruction? <laughs> so, you know, children can be easily seduced with candy. So don't take candy from strangers. So obviously a child, uh, you know, is in danger. Can't really defend itself. Doesn't really have discrimination. But a mature person does. And so again, when you become mature and advanced in Krishna consciousness, you are able to be really nice to everyone, to make everyone comfortable with you, and that does not threaten your own self-understanding. I mean, I've heard from Sandhuri say that if they go out in the street just dressed in normal clothes, even though Prabhupada actually strongly recommended this for Sankirtan, but there are devotees that say that if they go out in the street in regular clothes, it actually they it threatens their Krishna consciousness. They need people to stare at them. <laughs> 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 so whatever's going to float your Vedic boat, you know, it's just. <laughs> so who am I to, you know, rip someone's dhoti off? But, <laughs> but still, I, I think the point is that a more Krishna conscious person doesn't rely upon external, can I say crutches, or doesn't rely upon external things to remember who I am and what I'm doing and what's important in life. So um, another point which I've been making lately, it's amazing at my age, I still remember what I was saying a few weeks ago. I hope you're all duly impressed. That... Um, People may accept a philosophy of life, but you don't join philosophy. You join a community. And so as we know, there are many people in the world who read Prabhupada's books or other related books and who have some faith, but who don't necessarily join Krishna conscious communities. And I've even heard some devotees say in the last few years, uh, that, oh, you know, we don't, really, we don't care about people joining. And actually we do. And we have very good reason to care. I mean, not care in this the way we used to. We used to like, 
you know, tell them the hard, cold truth that if you don't live in a Hare Krishna temple, you basically are an atheist. <laughs> Sometimes you remember those glorious days of maturity. So anyway, so when I say join, I don't, I mean, I don't mean move into your local ashram, although that's, you know, an option some, that some people like, but well, first of all, obviously we should be nice to everyone and we shouldn't be nice to people if they surrender or something like that. That's not the point. You know, we're nice to everyone. We do want to make friends because there's a huge value, both strategically and also just spiritually in, in, in making friendship with people in general and in cultivating a very positive image in society, an image of the devotees. And of course, and Domini and her crack team for many years have really done this in, in an extraordinary way. But as far as, and, and people do join here also, but as far as getting people to join, what sociology tells us, you know, they say if everything else fails, read the instructions. So what, what social science tells us is that for a movement to really grow, you actually have to build your core. You have to build the core. And the reason I care about building the Hare Krishna movement, the reason I care about this is because Prabhupada taught me to care about it. And because many times, because Prabhupada wanted to save this planet. Now, if someone is not really that enthusiastic to save the planet, then it is more on the yad yet platform. Yad yet means whatever. Original Vedic Valley girls. Yad yet. <laughs> I'll tell you that joke later. So, but if you... Prabhupada really, Prabhupada really infused that in me when I, I spent, I spent, you know, time with Prabhupada and somehow or other, miraculously, I mean, Prabhupada somehow trusted my intelligence. And so many times he would tell me things he would, and uh, I went to be a secretary in 1976 in Mayapur and for a month and for the festival, and he actually never asked me to do any secretarial work. He just would call me and just wanted to talk to me about certain things. And and so in, in, in the time that I spent with Prabhupada here and there, um, it's not really about cucumbers. What I mean by that, by that provocative esoteric statement, <laughs> is that apparently in Bengali, in Bengali, the word for diamond and the word for cucumber sort of sound alike, or they're, they're similar words. So there's a saying that if you're selling a if you sell a cucumber, there'll be lots of customers because especially for those of us who used to go to India back in the old days, I mean, vegetables were just I mean you, you could buy a basket of vegetables literally for pennies. I mean Bengal, which is a sort of a, a vegetable intense environment, um, you know they practically give the vegetables away. Vegetables were super cheap, <clears throat> but with progress now and industrialization, they're more expensive. So, so in Bengal to say, you know, it's, it's like you're selling cucumbers means it's like, I mean, anyone could, could buy a cucumber, but if you're selling diamonds there are fewer customers, and so probably would say that, although he never said it to me. And I think one of the reasons is that somehow by his blessing, uh, he, I got different assignments and, and we got very, very positive results. And so when Prabhupada saw that someone was having some success in spreading his mission, he wouldn't talk about cucumbers. 
in diamonds, he would rather talk about how we have to save the planet. And that's what Prabhupada talked to me about, about his dream, his vision, which he actually enshrined in his own Pranam mantra, which he wrote because there was no one else to write it, which is Namaste Saraswati Devi. So uh, I bow to you, Namaste. What do they say in yoga schools? It's, it's kind of funny. The divine in me bows to the divine in you because they would never actually bow to each other because you know they're too proud. So they, anyway. But namaste in Sanskrit just means uh, bow to you, bow to you. That's just what it means. And so namaste Saraswati. So Prabhupada identified himself as a servant of his guru Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Devi, the spiritual master Gaudavani Pracharine. And the word pracharine, the preacher, we have the English word preach, prachar. Uh, chara means to go, and actually with the long A, uh, anyway, with all the grammar, but it means to, like, to send something forth. And pra, pra means, like, forth. Actually, similar to English pro, like, progress, like, to move forward as opposed to regress. So pra is like that, like English pro. And so uh, pracharine, making the message. Gauravani, the message of Lord Chaitanya, making it go forth, sending it forth. So Gauravani Pracharine, near Vishesha. Uh, Vishesha in Sanskrit, uh, a word from the same root, Vishesha means adjective, because an adjective in English or any language is a distinguishing word. Like if you say, for example, uh, which man, the tall man, which woman, the young woman, which house, the blue house. And so adjectives distinguish nouns. And so therefore the word vishesha means distinction, distinction. And so near vishesha means uh, without distinction. It means not making appropriate distinctions. Like you try to, you know, drink your soup with your feet or something. So it's, it's just not making appropriate distinctions. So what are those appropriate distinctions? Uh, it's confusing the fundamental categories of reality. And the Sanskrit word for fundamental category of reality is tattva. Well, if you can hang in there, I'll explain to you what tattva means. Because tattva sometimes means truth, or translated truth. But actually, satya also means truth, like satyam. Like if you want to tell somebody, tell the truth, you wouldn't say tattva, you would say satyam. Tell the truth. Satyam vada tell the truth. So tatwa is a special word for truth, which is very interesting. Tat in Sanskrit means that, as an om tat sat. You just add an H and it's English. So that in English, or tat in Sanskrit, same word, they are what are called demonstrative pronouns, which means they are words that point out something, that demonstrate something. And so therefore, since you cannot point out, you cannot demonstrate something that doesn't exist, in philosophical Sanskrit, tat comes to mean a real thing. A real thing, tat, like an own tat, tat. So then when you add the suffix twam, which means something like the state of being. So tat twam means a state of being a real thing. I'm actually sparing you a lot of historical linguistics, interesting, but anyway. So, so tatwa means having, this, having the, 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 the characteristic or 
being a real thing. And so therefore, tatwa means a fundamental category of reality, as in jiva tatwa. The fundamental category of real things, which is the soul, jiva tatwa, or vishnu tatwa, same thing, or prakriti tatwa. So, uh, nirvishesha means someone who cannot correctly distinguish the fundamental categories of reality. That's what nirvishesha is. For example, you confuse jiva and Vishnu. You think that you are God or some other jiva is God. Or you, you confuse Ishwara or Vishnu and Prakriti. You think Krishna has a material body. Or you confuse Jiva and Prakriti and you think that you are your body. So if you think about it, having a correct philosophical understanding means understanding the tattvas. Understanding the tattvas. And that's why, that's the very word Krishna uses in the famous verse, tadvidhi, which means know that, and know that, he's referring to something obviously, He's referring to the previous verses where he's talking about knowledge, spiritual knowledge. So know that spiritual knowledge. Tadvid vidhi is just, of course, the imperative from the root vid, like Veda. That's where you get the word Veda. And English words like vision, video, wisdom, wit, that's all the same thing. So tadvidhi, know that. Pranipatena. Pranipatena is a really interesting word. It can be translated by submission, but it actually physically describes because pra means forward and ni means down and pot means falling. So if you fall forward and down, that's called obeisances, what we call obeisances. And so the word pranipata literally visually describes the act of, of bowing down. So tadvidhi pranipatena pariprasnena, prasna's question. And pari, from which we get Greek and English peri, like perimeter, parimatra, perimeter. And so pari, when you put pari in front of a word, it means like all around in the sense of completely or thoroughly. So pari prashna or pari prashnena means by complete questioning, by thorough questioning. So tadvidhi pranipatena pari prashnena sevaya by service. Then upadekshantite, it actually, it's, it's in the plural, it's talking about wise people in the plural, not one person. And upadekshantite, te means they, they will teach you. And the word upadekshanti is just the plural, third person, future tense of uh, the same root as upadesha, like upadesha amrita, nectar of instruction. So upadesha is instruction, upadekshanti, they will instruct, they will teach. Upadekshanti te jnanam, jnaninas. And so Krishna, he puts these two words together in a very interesting way. I mean, the, the syntax, the, the word order is very important also. It's, if, if you know Sanskrit, then you, the order, because in Sanskrit you have much more freedom than in English to change the word order because it's an inflected language. Another time we'll talk about that. But anyway, you have a lot of freedom in Sanskrit to change the word order and it's still obvious what it means. And so Krishna says, they will teach you knowledge, knowledge because knowledge they have. He puts these two words, jnanam jnaninas. So he's emphasizing those who have knowledge, knowledge will teach. 
Those who have knowledge, knowledge will teach. And, and what does it mean to say that they have knowledge? And here we get back to tatwa because they are tatwa darshinaha. They have, we translate seers of the truth, but it really technically means seers of tatwa. What Krishna actually says is, I mean, it means seers of truth, but he's explicitly saying knowledge, uh, uh, those who have knowledge, knowledge they will teach you because they have seen tattva. And what that means is that a bona fide guru is someone who has seen and understands the difference between the jiva, Vishnu, and nature. If you see clearly these fundamental distinctions, the, these basic categories of reality, then you are tattva So going back to Prabhupada's Pranam Mantra, Nirvishesha means those who cannot make these distinctions. People who cannot distinguish between the fundamental categories of real things. And then Shunyavadi, Vada means speech in Sanskrit, and Vadi means someone who's advocating something. Someone who's you know speaking something, advocating something. So those who are teaching Shunya or Voidism. By the way, uh, the Buddhists did not mean by Shunyavad that nothing exists in the world. They specifically, the Buddha specifically rejected that idea. So if we're going around telling people, yeah, and the Buddhists think that you know everything is void, actually, no, that's not what they were teaching. What they meant by Shunyavad is that something like what Krishna teaches in the Gita. So Buddhism is, is kind of good as far as it goes. It just doesn't go very far. What they mean is, Krishna in, in the Gita, Krishna in chapter 8 describes it as adibhuta kshuro bhava, that the governing principle of nature is that everything's always changing, perishing. And so the Buddhists mean that if you look at this world, and of course they don't know about the soul, but if you look at this world, at any object, your own body, or um, your own body, or a house, or anything, a mountain, you cannot identify a fixed, permanent object because everything is always in change, in flux. And I always quote uh, Heraclitus about 2,500 years ago, at the same time as Buddha who was teaching this. Heraclitus, a, an ancient Greek philosopher, said, You cannot step in the same river twice. You cannot step in the same river twice. And, and then my version of it is you can't breathe in the same body twice. Because your body, like, we may be sitting here peacefully, but there's like, it's like inside your body is like this huge industrial city with all kinds of things going on, digital things, industrial things. I mean, there's, there are millions of actions and reactions going on inside your body. It's, and as I've said many times with this, with the revolution in the last several decades of microbiology, they're discovering that your body is actually much more complicated, sophisticated, technical than they ever dreamed. It's like exponentially more technologically advanced than they ever imagined before, which makes it increasingly ridiculous and absurd to say that it just happened by itself which more and more people are starting to say. 
So, um, so if you point to your body, which body? I mean, every two weeks, your skin changes. I always I used to give this example. You know, some romantic guy wants to, you know, I touched her hand. You know, remember what was the, one of the Beatles' first big hits? I want to hold your hand. But which hand? Because every two weeks, it's a new hand. Which is not so romantic, but... <laughs> So that's what the Buddhists mean by void, that the, that the universe is devoid of a fixed object that is just always itself because everything is always in change, which Krishna already explained. By the way, the second sermon of the Buddha, like we're still in the grand opening in the Deer Park in Benares, you know, the grand opening of Buddhism and, uh, you know, free, free prizes for the kids. Anyway, so the second sermon has historically always been called the Sermon on the Non-Existence of the Soul or the Self. And the most striking feature of this short sermon is Buddha never says there's not a soul. I used to read it. It's only like a paragraph or two little paragraphs. And I used to read it in the, in the courses I was giving at the University of Florida. And he doesn't say that. He uses the via negativa, uh, which means that you take away everything that's not the truth and what's left is the truth. So is the eternal is is the body the eternal soul? Nope. Is the material mind the eternal soul? Nope. And so you eliminate and and you know the end. He never says there is no eternal soul. So anyway, and today, uh, what's the figure in the, in the book I use in my course? I think eighty-five percent, at least you know, ten years ago, eighty-five percent of living Buddhists are actually Mahayana Buddhists, not. Uh, Theravada, what do they call it? Mahinayana, which is sort of a derogatory term. And in, in Mahayana Buddhism, it's just old-fashioned religion. You know, you go to heaven, you go to paradise, you have a personal savior, you chant the holy names. It's just Buddhism became a world religion, not with this silly one-hand clapping stuff. That's not what made Buddhism a world religion. In fact, it would never have become a world religion. Buddhism became a world religion by being a normal religion. And so there's a kind of Buddhism which is specially marketed in the West, I guess, you know, for, uh, you know, sort of well-to-do or educated white people who had a bad experience in their childhood religion. But, but in fact, Buddhism, uh, yeah, so, but still, Shunyavadi, but there are people that teach that, that there is no truth. Because they, 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 they irrationally extend this principle of constant change and say, just as there's no fixed real object, physical real object in the world, so there's no fixed soul. Which, which is, again, is not really Buddhism. That's not the Buddhism that became a world religion. In fact, even back in ancient Buddhism, uh, back in the, you know, over 2,000 years ago, there was a prominent Buddhist group in North India called the Pudgalavadis, meaning those who advocated a soul. And they were prominent, I mean, thousands of years ago, they were prominent in India, Buddhism in India. And they taught, because all the Buddhists accepted karma. So if you accept that we have karma, like, in fact, you know, the most popular books were the uh, Jataka stories, like, how did Buddha become Buddha? Well, maybe like lifetimes ago, he was a pious ship captain that saved a drowning person. You have all these stories, and he took birth here. And took, so if there's no soul, how is it still him? I mean, how do you get credit for the good things you do if you don't exist? 
And one interesting feature about, uh, if you look at Buddhist monasteries historically, is that they were really concerned, almost obsessed with the karma and the fate of their ancestors, because ancestor worship is a big thing in Asia. And so they would do all these rituals and chant these mantras to benefit their ancestors. Well, wait a second, you don't exist, your ancestors don't exist. So it's just like, yeah, yeah. In the real world, they were attached to their ancestors or relatives. In the real world, if you have karma, that means there is a continuous soul, because otherwise, who gets the karma? And if there's no soul, how could there even be such a thing as sin? Because let's say you just go and shoot someone, but you didn't do it because you don't exist. So how could you get bad karma because you don't exist? And you didn't kill anyone because the person you shot doesn't exist. So this anatmavad, this no soul philosophy is, is to say it's counterintuitive would be saying very little. It really makes no sense at all. And, and there's just these massive internal contradictions in this type of uh, voidist philosophy, denying the soul. Massive philosophical, it basically comes out to philosophical nonsense. I don't want to, anyway, don't say that in public because people will think we're not nice. So, anyway, in Prabhupada's Pranam Mantra, Nirvishesha Shunyavadi, and then Paschatya Desha, Tari, Paschatya means Western. So, Prabhupada defined himself, understood himself, or his mission as Tari savior, I'll explain what that word means, the savior of the Western world. I mean, obviously Prabhupada cared about the whole world, but Prabhupada told me so many times that his whole global strategy depended on powerfully establishing Krishna consciousness in the West. The word we translate as savior is tarine. The A at the end, E, the letter, he just means unto, unto the tarin. So, the Sanskrit word Tara means crossing. It means crossing. For example, one who crosses down from the spiritual realm to the material realm, uh, Ava means downward in Sanskrit. It's called an Avatara, literally a down crosser. One who crosses down from the spiritual realm to the material realm. And it's very interesting, one becomes Tarine or Tari when one takes people back. So Prabhupada, you have Prabhupada as a type of avatar, Shakti Amesha avatar, crossing down from the spiritual world to this world, and then creating a bridge and bringing people back across from the material to the spiritual. And that's why the places associated with Krishna's pastimes or the lives and, and activities of great devotees are called tirthas from the same root. Because when an avatar comes down, that avatar creates a type of channel between the spiritual and material world. So the place where they come down is called a tirtha because that's where you can go back up through that same channel. So all these words are related. Avatara, tirtha, paschatyadesha, tarine. It's fun. Sounds good. Anyway, so that's Prabhupada. Prabhupada defined himself, characterized himself in his pranam mantra as the savior of the Western countries. And the list of saved Western countries is not real long at this point in history. And therefore we do care about people joining. Now, 
it, there's a natural pendulum shift because in the early days we were like, I, I call it in the early days, Vedic Lord of the Flies. We were just, anyway, Lord of the Flies is a story about a bunch of very proper English schoolboys that are trapped on an island together and they just, and there's no adults and they just devolve very quickly into almost like these savages. But we were, you know, you know, we were, I mean, we were sincere, but whoo, you know, we were very heavy. So, so then naturally you get this pendulum shift where no, we don't want anyone to join. No, no, we just want you to be happy. Let's just be friends. I mean, that's good. We do just want to be friends. But at the same time, we're not going to save this planet if we don't raise an army. And Prabhupada himself gave a military analogy. I mean, I don't mean real military, like shooting people and throwing bombs at them, but but in terms of Prabhupada says in the Gita, as if in military discipline, if we don't raise a preaching army, we're going to fail. And so people that say, oh yeah, we don't care about people joining. It's like, really? What world are you in? I mean, I'm in the world that you know Prabhupada wanted to save. And therefore, it is important that, and, and Prabhupada himself, I mean, who can even count how many times Prabhupada at the end of a lecture, he would say, help this Krishna consciousness movement. So why don't you take part? Why don't you join us? Isn't it? That, that was like a typical way he would end his lectures. Join this movement, help this movement, work with this movement. Prabhupada was looking for people who were serious, who actually wanted to do something. For example, let's say you're in some college and you go to a meeting of an animal rights club. You know very well that, you know, probably that club, they're activists. That if you get involved with those people, you will be expected to help to change the world in some way. The same thing for political action club. If you join, let's say, the young Democrats or the young Republicans on campus, you understand that you're joining something or you're hanging out with people who are activists who want to change the world according to certain ideals they hold. And so I think we should be nice to everyone. We should be friendly. But at the same time, I think with people who are more serious, we have to make clear that we're trying to change the world for the better. We're trying to save this planet and we need a lot of help. Of course, you know, people are not interested. We shouldn't, you know, bully them or, you know, browbeat them. But I'm saying people who are interested and sympathetic we should make very clear as Prabhupada did, we're trying to do something. We're actually trying to do something. We're trying to save a planet. You know, it just, it can't all depend on Tom Cruise and Bruce Willis, you know, save the planet. They're getting old and, you know, they can't, can't save it anymore. So uh, in that sense, but so who can help say, so we have to get back to your friendship topic, which I didn't forget, that um, you have to be a nice guy. Or, you know, using guy in the unisex way can be used nowadays. I mean, you, you, we have to, you have to be nice. You have to actually like people. You can't just like be really committed to our philosophy. Like I'm really committed to saving jivas. You know, I love all jivas. I just can't stand the people out there. <laughs> so we really yeah that's what we need that's what that's why i'm doing my rabble rousing you know, you know what I mean. 
that um, and, and there are different ways to do it. You know, I mean, Sandamani has her own genius. She's made a wonderful community, but somehow or other, we have to um, we have to ourselves get serious about saving the planet and help Prabhupada and, and convince other people. I'm sure it was Krishna's arrangement that I um, that I went to Berkeley. I, I was in Berkeley at the most famous time. I was there on the street. It's funny because my brother and I, our picture was on the front page of the Oakland Tribune in the middle of a riot. I wasn't, I wasn't rioting. I was actually one time I was during the People's Park thing. Um, you know, all the students, we were all on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley and they had, I think they had the National Guard and, and all these police from different nearby cities. And they was like a standoff on the main street and the students had closed the street down. And I had been in a lot of these things. And so I just looked at everything and I said, it's tear gas time on Telegraph Avenue. And so I just said, am I into being tear gassed right now? No. <laughs> so I just, I just turned down a side street off Telegraph in the student area. And, you know, literally as soon as I turned, made the turn, I heard the canisters, saw the tear gas and everyone's screaming. Ah! And so, so then, I, then I ran into a devotee. It was actually McConnell. <laughs> McConnell. He's, what's this sannyasi now? Name now? Yeah. Well, I, he was actually, he was actually the first devotee that preached to me. McConnell. And, um, so he would, to show you what Berkeley was like back then, this is around 68 or something, maybe early 69. He was leading maybe about like a dozen people in Harinam. They weren't devotees, but they were, they're kind of like hippies. And, and I don't think any of them was dressed in the same century. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were, and, and he was, you know, had little, little cartels and, he, you know, McConnell, he was absorbed in the holy name. And um, I don't think there were any two people saying the same mantra. <laughs> you know, but he was just so ecstatic he didn't notice. And so, <laughs> but anyway, what did he say? What's that? What did he say? Did so that was different. That was in in 1969. It was the last day before I went home, Southern California, for the summer. And um, so this huge pickup truck, like this really oversized flatbed pickup truck was just snaking its way through Berkeley, you know, inviting everyone to jump on the truck. And, and it was driving people up to this free rock and roll end of semester concert in the Tilden Meadows. It's really very, very beautiful meadow up on top of the Berkeley Hills. And so I went up there and um, and so they gave permission to the Doys. There's McCunlell and another Ramachari, who I, I don't think is with us at this point, but so they gave them permission to chant before the concert started. And they set up these monster speakers. These things were like as big as, you know, I mean, really huge. And they were like, you know, tuning their guitar, you know, making the trees shake and everything. And so then McConnell and, his, and, his, and other, other devotee went on the stage and they had these little cheap little cartels. They didn't have like Indian, <laughs> the ones you would buy in like India import stores, you know, little brass things that, yeah, not very <laughs> musical. And so, and they were just, and they weren't really singing in key. And I mean, they were not about to win a Grammy award. <laughs> and they were singing Hare Krishna. And, and meanwhile, all these, 
And I thought, these people are really sincere. That was what I thought, because <laughs> there's all these speakers, these professional musicians warming up and tuning, and they're just like, all right, <laughs> put their robes. And so then they, so then after he chanted, he, it, it's because in those days, no one knew what Hare Krishna was. No one had ever seen a Sankirtan party practically in Berkeley, and much less book distribution. And, you know, it was kind of in, Oriental was in, Indian mysticism was in. And so he was just sort of wandering through the meadow <laughs> and um, trailed by all these people. He was kind of like this, you know, like this mystic figure wandering through the meadow. And so I went up to him in my different state of consciousness and I said, isn't everything beautiful? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then he said to me, yes, so just think how beautiful is the source of everything. Oh. And I was stunned. I mean, he kind of walked on. I was literally just stunned. It was the first time I kind of heard Krishna conscious philosophy. I was just stunned by that. I still remember it. So anyway, uh, I forget what I was talking about, but um, I mean, obviously times have changed. The world is very, very, very different. People are sort of, you know, melting, collectively melting their brains on social media. There's all kinds of studies now that show that they actually are melting their brains on social media. And so, but somehow or other, somehow or other, you know, Prabhupada came and he was, Prabhupada once said to me, Prabhupada actually, after, just after I took sannyas, I was with Prabhupada and he said to me, because the GBC had voted that I should go open up Spain. There was no Hare Krishna in Spain. And so I went to Prabhupada's room and he said, so what are you going to do? He was like, is really in the mood of a father, like, okay, I gave you this big title. Now, what are you going to do? He's going to sit around and eat or, you know, he didn't say that, but like, what are you going to do now with this position I gave you? And so I told Prabhupada that, well, I was 23 years old. You know, you know, 23-year-old males are very mature <laughs> and a mere, you know, like seven or eight years away from having an adult brain. That's amazing. I took some young before my brain was fully formed. But anyway, so so Prabhupada, um, when I told Prabhupada the GVC wanted me to go to Spain, Prabhupada said, first get books and then you go. And then Prabhupada told me, when I came to your country, when I was getting down from the boat, he said, literally, when he was walking down from the boat, he said, I didn't know if I should turn right or left. But he said, I, I was not afraid because I had my books. My confidence was that I brought my books. So first get books in Spanish, then you can go. And I didn't go because the GBC for Spain was not interested in getting books in Spanish. But So somehow or other, Krishna is a source of all knowledge. We have to, if we care about the world, if we actually care about the world, we care about Prabhupada because there is no Prabhupada that's not living to save the planet. Prabhupada came to this planet for only one reason, and that's to save it. He had no interest in this planet, wasn't curious. He only came to this planet to save it. He had no other purpose in being on this planet. Prabhupada personally told me, actually, privately, that there was never a time when he didn't know Krishna. So, so that's the real Prabhupada. Prabhupada didn't, you know, the real Prabhupada came to this planet to save it and love for Prabhupada manifests as a determination to do whatever we can. We're all in different situations. 
But as I always say, if you're very sincere, you will have your Rudolph moment. Then one foggy Christmas Eve, Santa came to say, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you lead my Sankirtan party tonight? So <laughs> it, 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 it's totally irrelevant, you know, gender, age, where you are in this con pecking order. All that is completely irrelevant. It, it's completely irrelevant what kind of body you have, what age you are, how many titles you have after your name and, you know, Sanskrit titles. None of that matters because every one of us can approach Krishna within our own heart and pray to Krishna so sincerely that he will empower us and you'll have your Rudolph moment. You can lead the Sankirtan slave. So no one is too old, no one is too young, no one is the wrong gender, no one is the right gender, no one, you know, it's not that, well, first I had to have this or that position. If Krishna wants to empower you, he will empower you. No one can tell Krishna that he cannot empower a sincere soul because, excuse me, Lord, but that's not the right body. Yeah, you know, that's just nonsense. Krishna can empower anyone, anyone. It doesn't matter if you've been kind of, you know, let's say in a holding pattern for 30 years or something. You know, it's, anyone can actually become a great devotee and can become empowered to serve Krishna. I'll end just with one thing, because to me, real friendship is based on love for Prabhupada. Because the best friendship is the friendship among those who actually love Prabhupada. Reminds me of that great song, that great bhajan called People Get Ready by Curtis Mayfield and the uh, and the Impressions. You know that song, People Get Ready? People get ready, there's a train to Jordan. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and the words are completely Krishna conscious. Uh, there, uh, there's always room for those who love the most. And so... I remember, I'll end with this, that when I was walking with Prabhupada in Rancho Park, I had this amazing experience, which I've talked about many times, that how Krishna was spiritualizing my past because uh, Karunder, who used to be the leader in LA, you remember Karunder? Yeah. He was BBT trustee and president of New Dwork and it was a really big temple. And um, so he, on the side, he had a householder business because he was married and had a kid. And so, his business was that he would buy late model Rolls Royces. He would fix them up and then resell them. So whenever Prabhupada came to LA, he had like a super silver cloud or something like that. And so we would, I would drive, and I somehow or other, I always drove in the car with Prabhupada on his walk. And so uh, we would drive to Rancho Park. Prabhupada one day would go to Rancho Park, one day to Venice Beach. But when he went to Rancho Park, that was my neighborhood park. I mean, that's where I swam, that's where I played Little League Baseball. That's where I, you know, played tennis with my friends. That was the neighborhood park, Rancho Park. And so when we, I would drive with Prabhupada, and I was thinking, uh, and I, I was kind of thinking to myself, you've come a long way, baby. Because <laughs> there, I was, there I was in this Rolls Royce sitting next to Prabhupada in the back, you know, being chauffeured in a Rolls Royce. And driving by his really beautiful house, it's a very beautiful neighborhood where I'd gone to parties, you know, and danced and, you know, and it was kind of sinful because we had onion dip with the potato chips. <laughs> so, you know, in that sense, it was very degrading, but... but anyway, so we would drive by all these houses where I 
where I, you know, I, my friends live and I went to parties. And then we'd drive to the park and we literally, I'd walk with Prophet over the Little League Baseball Diamonds <laughs> where I played. And, um, and we stopped at one point. There's one little hill. And uh, I'll show you wherever in LA. And um, Prabhupada, he was, when, when Prabhupada was walking, he would be preaching or talking. When he really got into a point, really wanted to make a point, he would stop and put his cane down. And then he would, you know, really, really get into it. And um, so he, he stopped at one point, at this particular point in the park. And he was quoting from Bhagavad Gita, those famous, that, that famous verse from chapter 11, where Krishna tells Arjuna, Mayaivaite, which means Mayaiva. By me alone, by me alone, ate all these soldiers, nihata have been slain, purvam eva, already. Purvam eva is very emphatic because purvam, which is, we have from, from that Sanskrit, purva, we have English words like previous. So, but purvam eva means re, like actually before, like it's already happened, it's emphatic. Purvam eva, it's already happened. And What's already happened is I alone have slain all these soldiers. Nimitta matram, same word matra. Matra means measure. And so it's used at the end of a word to mean only that measure, no more, no less. And nimitta means instrument, like Aristotle's instrumental cause. Right, you're all Aristotle lovers. So, so nimitta matram, just be the bhava. Bhava means be, just be the instrument. Nothing more, nothing less. Don't be less than the instrument and don't be more. Just be the instrument. Nimitta matram bhava savyasachan. Savyasachan means kind of sort of like lefty because savya means left. So it's Arjuna's ambidextrous. So, um, so after Prabhupada quoted that, then he looked at us and he was preaching. I'll never forget that. He was saying how, you know, what Krishna said that Krishna already killed the soldiers. And then Prabhupada sort of dramatized it. He dramatized it and he was speaking both parts, Krishna and Arjuna. Because he was, he was really into it. And so Krishna was saying, Arjuna, do not think that any of these soldiers are going home to their families. They're not going home. And so then he was saying that, um, Krishna wanted to give the glory to Arjuna. Krishna is saying that I'm actually doing it, but I want to give the glory to you. In fact, he says that. Jashovaswa. Take the you know, you know, which means Lavaswa literally means take the glory. Jasho means like glory or praise, like Jashoda, who gives fame, or Kirti Dax means the same thing. Jasha is a synonym of Kirti or Kirtan. And so Krishna tells Arjuna, just show Labaswa, take the glory, Arjuna. I'm doing it. I alone am doing it, but you take the glory because that's my love for you because you're my devotee. And then Krishna is telling Arjuna, then Prabhupada told us, just as Krishna had already slain all these soldiers, Krishna has already spread his movement all over the world. It's already done, but it's not visible yet because he wants to give you the credit. And so therefore, and then Prabhupada said, if you don't do it, someone else will take the credit. Why don't you take the credit? 
Why don't you become Krishna's instrument? And again, there's no, there's no external qualification. It, it, it has nothing to do with gender, age, uh, you know, hierarchical position in ISKCON. It has nothing to do with that. Krishna is in everyone's heart equally. And everyone has exactly the same opportunity to s surrender to Krishna, love Krishna, and have their Rudolph moment. <laughs> On one foggy Sankirtan Eve or Janmashtami Eve. Anyway, so always remember that's what Prabhupada taught us. So friendship. Real friendship means you care about other people because someone who claims to be a friend but doesn't really care about you is not really a friend. A friend in need is a friend indeed. And so you can't really be a friend to anyone unless you care about other people. And the one who has a big heart, who can care about lots of people, that person becomes glorious as a preacher in Lord Chaitanya Sankirtan Army. It's just, it boils down to how much you care. And of course, we live in a very narcissistic age. And we even have the narcissist in chief in a high political position. So that's what, it, that's what it is. Any one of us, if we are sincere, can be empowered by Krishna. And just what Krishna told Arjuna, Yasho Labaswa, take the glory, Arjuna. Be my instrument. That's real friendship. Because first be a friend to Krishna. Be a friend to Prabhupada. If you're actually a friend to Prabhupada and Krishna, then you can be a friend to other people. And so the more you care, the more Krishna will empower you. So thank you very much. Or as they say in Sanskrit, Tatsarvam Janaha, which means that's all, folks. It actually does mean that in Sanskrit. So any questions? If you have a question, could you please come here? And ask it on on the air. So otherwise, it's, anyone have a question? We're wondering what what term is there. I know. <laughs> Another hour lecture. <laughs> yes. Qu'est-ce um, que tu peux arriver ici? Oui, oui, yeah. Because the devotees are you know all very interesting. So I actually want people around the world to meet the devotees. We are in Tucson, Arizona. Did Jojo ever actually join? Or... <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I hope I have it formulated clear enough. You were talking about the importance of uh, the devotees wanting to, to give Krishna when we have a chance to talk to intelligent people. And, and I'm always wondering how do we feel the limit how, how much can we push krishna on people who who are intelligent but but might have their own belief system and yes. and i and i think of a verse that of course i don't remember in the bhagavatam that says that it's actually an offense to preach to people who have who have already a belief like um right that's a very good a point person I yeah, know yeah. At the university that's and, a very good point um Okay, very good point. I understand. So, uh, yes, we don't want to just be aggressive. We don't want to force ourselves on people. No one likes that. I think the answer is that we have to create situations in which people can come forward. For example, I really like saying at book tables. 
I think it's great. You sit at a book table, respectable, people come to you and you talk to them. So we have to hold programs. We have to create situations where people can express an interest so we're not just harassing them. And then we, and then we have to be very clever and intelligent to explain Krishna consciousness in a way that they can understand and appreciate. So I guess we'll stop here. And uh, thank you all on Facebook uh, for listening. Thank you for all the emojis. Uh, unfortunately, I guess we won't really have time to answer the Facebook questions, but thank you all very much. Hare Krishna.